The word of God from Daniel 2. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that troubled him, and sleep deserted him. So the king gave orders to summon the magicians, mediums, sorcerers, and Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. When they came and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream and am anxious to understand it. The Chaldeans spoke to the king. May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will give the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made like a garbage dump. But if you make the dream and its interpretation known to me, you'll receive gifts, a reward, and great honor from me. So make the dream and its interpretation known to me. They answered a second time. May the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will make known the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain you are trying to gain some time, because you see that my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream, there is one decree for you. You have conspired to tell me something false or fraudulent until the situation changes. So tell me the dream, and I will know you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king, No one on earth can make known what the king requests. Consequently, no king, however great or powerful, has ever asked anything like this of any magician, medium, or Chaldean. What the king is asking is so difficult that no one can make it known to him, except the gods, whose dwelling is not with mortals. Because of this, the king became violently angry, and he gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. The decree was issued that the wise men were to be executed, and they searched for Daniel and his friends to execute them. Then Daniel responded with tact and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guards, who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. He asked Arioch, the king's officer, why is the decree from the king so harsh? Then Arioch explained the situation to Daniel. So Daniel went and asked the king to give him some time so that he could give the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter, urging them to ask the God of heavens for mercy concerning this mystery so Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of Babylon's wise men. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I invite you to take a copy of the scriptures. Maybe you have one already open from that scripture reading, but the one under the seat in front of you, if you turn to page 782, has the story that was just read. But before you look down at your Bible and we dive into that story, I want you just for a moment, imagine in your mind's eye a royal palace, a royal bedroom, and King Nebuchadnezzar, the powerful, the great, the ruler of the world, the egotistical, powerful king, can't sleep. He's a regal insomniac. He is sleepless as a sovereign. 
in your mind's eye, see him on his bed, tossing and turning like a freshly caught fish flopping on the cutting board. The most powerful king of the known world was used to stress. He knew what a challenging work environment was. Political intrigues and military campaigns, high-pressure work environments. But this, this was different. The most powerful governmental figure in the world responsible for conquering mighty Egypt, for terrorizing Palestine, for capturing and killing thousands, and he can't so much as catch a few winks. You see, God gives to his beloved sleep, we're told in Psalm 127, but God is giving to Nebuchadnezzar nightmares. Nebuchadnezzar calls his counselors from their slumber. The king's counselors were a powerful and an assorted lot. Some were magicians, some were sorcerers, others were Chaldeans known for their dabbling in soothsaying. Many of them, frankly, were just quacks. Some were smart, others were demonically empowered. And as the counselors approach, Nebuchadnezzar speaks. He says, I had a dream. My spirit is troubled to know what it means. You see, like any ancient Near Eastern king, Nebuchadnezzar believed dreams were communications from the gods. They gave wisdom. They gave insight. He had to know what this dream meant. But first, he had to find out what that dream meant from someone other than himself. So the Chaldeans speak for the group, O king, live forever. This is our specialty. We have textbooks, as a matter of fact, that help us to interpret dreams. You tell us the dream, no problem, king. We've got you covered. We will show you what it means. But the king's eyes narrow. His brows furrow. His gaze hardens. And Nebuchadnezzar's nightmare is about to spawn a nightmare for the counselors. The king responds, Daniel 2, verse 5, my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream and what it means, you will be torn limb from limb, your houses will be made a garbage dump. But if you make the dream and its interpretation known to me, you'll receive gifts and rewards and great honor. So, go ahead, tell me the dream, tell me its interpretation. What sort of request is this? Think about it. How many of us can accurately remember our own dreams when we wake up? Much less tell what jumbled thoughts and bizarre events might have taken place in the mind of someone sleeping the night before. The Chaldeans again speak for the group, this time a little less sure and a little more shakier. O king, tell us the dream, and we will tell you what it means. Nebuchadnezzar's face cracks a dark, humorless smile. Verse 8. I know for certain you're trying to gain some time because you see that my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream, there is one decree for you. You have conspired to tell me something false or fraudulent until the situation changes, or... We could actually read that until the times change. So, tell me the dream, 
and I will know you can give me its interpretation. See, Nebuchadnezzar is actually pretty shrewd here. He's saying, I don't want some concocted description and interpretation of this dream. I actually want to know what it means. If you can tell me what it was, I know you can tell me what it means. If I tell you the dream, how do I know you're not just going to tell me whatever I want to hear? So Nebuchadnezzar's nightmare has turned into a nightmare for the counselors, and they are flabbergasted. They respond, there isn't a man alive who can tell the king what you dreamed. It's impossible. No king has even asked this of anyone before. You're breaking new ground, Copernicus, and it's not new ground. This is an impossible request. No one could tell you what it means except the gods themselves. Interesting statement for the counselors to respond. And the counselors continue, and they don't dwell with men. Now, if you hear a lit fuse sparking, don't be alarmed. It's not in this room. It's coming from the pages of your Bible. Nebuchadnezzar's sleep deprivation hasn't helped when it comes to his anger management issues. In true thwarted, despot fashion, Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind. The Aramaic here says he became red and inflamed, intensely angry, violently angry. So, in a flash of fury, what is the sane command of the king? Well, that's it. Round up all the counselors, slaughter them, destroy them, just get rid of all the wise men. They're worthless. So now Nebuchadnezzar's nightmare is not just a nightmare for the counselors, it's a nightmare for the exiles as well. Daniel and his friends are being sought for death. Remember Daniel? Back in chapter 1, we met he and his friends. They'd been brought from Jerusalem in 605 BC. They were in the process, perhaps nearing graduation of their three-year Babylonian education. They're probably between 15 to 18 years old at this point. And Daniel hears that he and his three friends are to be slaughtered with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So Daniel tactfully gets the details from the guard, Arioch, and he requests some time from King Nebuchadnezzar. Apparently King Nebuchadnezzar must have been softened a bit from his earlier rage because he responds, yes, he agrees. So verses 17 and 18, we read this. Daniel goes to his house and he tells his friend, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter. He lives in community with these three men, these three brothers, and he urges them to ask, and the text says, to ask the God of the heavens for mercy concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his three friends wouldn't be destroyed. So these four young men immediately fall on their faces before God, imploring him for mercy in the form of revelation. And they do so as if their lives depended upon it, because their lives actually do. They have no other recourse. There is no higher human authority to depend upon. There is no 
neighboring state that they can go seek political asylum in. There's no rival throne that they can seek mercy from. You see, there are some mysteries that we navigate in life that require nothing less than the wisdom of God. And no earthly wisdom can come close. And Daniel and his friends know that. And there's nothing they can do. So they pray. And they wait. They call upon the name of God. But who is this God to whom they're praying? They're calling out to the exceptional God of the heavens, the text says. Now, we don't know how long they prayed, but we know that within a moment, these men go from death row to the front row seat of a worship service. Because God shows up. Because God answers. He reveals to Daniel both the dream and the interpretation of that dream. So put yourself in the shoes, the sandals of these four young men praying desperately for their lives. And God shows up and answers. Can you imagine the relief that flooded that little prayer room? Up to this point, we've been following the flow of Daniel 2 a bit from 30,000 feet. But if we're to understand the anchor of this passage, then we need to look more closely at this song of praise. When you read the Bible, look for repeated words and repeated themes. So look down now at verses 17 to 20. What name of God is repeated in those verses? The title for God that shows up is the title, God of Heaven. That title shows up 24 times in scriptures and four times in this chapter or four times in the book of Daniel completely and all four times in this chapter specifically. This title is significant. The pagan gods of the Old Testament were thought to be limited in geographic or limited in power according to the geography of the nation that worshipped them. So Daniel and his friends recognize that they don't serve the God of Jerusalem or the God of Palestine or the God even of the Assyrian Empire. They worship and serve the God of the heavens. He has no geographical limitations. He has no limitations, period. His reign and his rule is unlimited. And Daniel can't help but respond in a prayer poem of praise that Kayla read for us or Kayla stopped short of that, rather, looking at verse 20. Now, notice with me the parallelism, parallelism in these verses, okay? First, Daniel mentions two reasons for praising God. Look at verse 20. Daniel says, because wisdom and power belong to God. So he's praising God because wisdom and power belong to God. Now, if we had more time, we would look in depth at how Daniel is highlighting one phrase above the others in this praise poem. There is one phrase in verse 21 that is being emphasized above all the others through chiasm, like we've talked about in past weeks. And look at verse 21. That phrase is this. 
God changes the times and the seasons, or we could see the epochs, the epochs, the eras, he removes kings and establishes kings. This is the linchpin of the prayer poem of praise and the entirety of Daniel 2. What is truly happening when world eras change, when nations rise and fall? What is happening as times and rulers change is God is actively displaying both his power and his wisdom to his people. Now, in the flow of geopolitics throughout history, God is actively, repeatedly, repeatedly, without fail, displaying his power and his wisdom. So what is wisdom? What is the wisdom of God? Put simply, we could describe God's wisdom like this. God always chooses the best goals and the best means to accomplish those goals. That's God's wisdom. What is God's power? Put simply, we could say God is able to accomplish his goals through the means that he chooses. God's wisdom and God's power. Now let me ask you, is it important that the God we serve, the God of the heavens, is it important that he is both wise and powerful? Well, let's think about this for a moment. If God were all wise, but not all powerful, he would have the knowledge and skill to orchestrate everything according to his wise and gracious plan. But, he'd lack the ability to execute that plan. He'd have an incredible plan that would blow our minds, but no ability to execute it. He'd be an impotent God. But if God were all powerful without wisdom, he would be able to do anything he desired, but we couldn't trust him. He wouldn't be a good God. He'd be a fool. He'd be a skillless sovereign, a powerful fool, a stupid despot with all the power possible and no wisdom governing that power. Unable to choose the best goals and with only the power to accomplish what he wanted to. And so friends, in the midst of uncertainty, like the uncertainty of your life and the uncertainty of my life, if God were powerful but not wise, we wouldn't love him and we certainly couldn't trust him. But brothers and sisters, God is both wise and powerful. He is neither powerless nor foolish. He has all power and all wisdom. Thus, he carefully plans every design, every action, every event according to his gracious and good nature. Then he executes those designs to perfection by his all-encompassing power. Friends, what manner of God is this that we have come to worship today? He is a wise God so we can joyfully love him. He's a powerful God so we can hope in him to accomplish his goals, which are best 
through the best means. And so we can say with the hymn writer, the songwriter, behold our God seated on his throne, come let us adore him. Behold our king, nothing can compare, come let us adore him. Now while we've been analyzing the song of praise, the wise men have been rounded up for execution in Daniel 2. And Daniel has been running the streets of Babylon from the little prayer room to the palace. And we pick up the story in verse 24. And the story moves quickly now. And we see Daniel ushered into the presence of the king. And the king asks Daniel if he can tell the dream and its interpretation. And I don't know, if it was me, I probably would be like, oh yeah, king, I got you covered. How does Daniel answer the king? No wise man, no medium, no magician, no diviner is able to make known to the king the mystery he asked about. Verse 27. But, King Nebuchadnezzar, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. It's a pretty important phrase. In the last days. So, get on with it, Daniel. What was the dream? Verse 29. Your majesty, while you were asleep in your bed, thoughts came to your mind about what will happen in the future. As you were watching, suddenly a colossal statue appeared. The statue, tall and dazzling, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was terrifying. The head of the statue pure gold its chest and arms silver its stomach and thighs bronze its legs iron its feet partly iron partly clay a dazzling statue but the nightmare isn't actually about the statue it's about a stone look at verse 34 O king nebuchadnezzar as you looked A stone was cut out by no human hand. And it struck the image, the statue on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them all in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces. Just imagine this statue exploding and dissolving as a small stone hits the feet. The bronze, the clay, the iron, the silver, the gold, they became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. The statue is obliterated. The gold, the silver, bronze, iron, clay crumbles to the ground and becomes nothing more than, well, dust in the wind. Chaff, which the wind drives away. But what becomes of the stone? End of verse 35. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain. And it filled the whole earth. Okay, that's a lot to take in. It's a lot going on here. Don't get lost in the details. We've got a freaky multi-metaled statue. A stone obliterates it. The stone grows into a mountain. Okay? What does it all mean? 
verse 36, I believe. This was the dream. Now we will tell you its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of the heavens has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. Now what does that sound like? The God of heaven removes and establishes kings. You, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. You, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. Boy, that had to feel good. Yes, I am the head of gold. But Daniel's not done. But after you, after you, because there's going to be an after you, Nebuchadnezzar. You with all your pomp and all your glory and all your power, all your might, all the fearfulness of who you are as the mightiest king of the world, after you, after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. Now you ought to be saying to yourself, I've heard this song before. What does this sound like? Verse 21. God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. The wisdom and the power of God is at work among the nations as he raises rulers, as he puts down rulers. Now it's only natural where humans, humans human curiosity begs to know what the kingdoms are that are being spoken of in this dream, right? And that's natural. The kingdoms seem to grow in strength even as they decrease in value. The strength of the metal increases as the value of the metal decreases. So there's political and moral decay that seem to be evident in this statue. And most Bible scholars agree that these kingdoms are first... Babylon, the head of gold under Nebuchadnezzar. Second, the Medo-Persian Empire. That's the chest of silver under Cyrus. Remember the end of chapter 1 ended with Daniel being in the court of the king until Cyrus. As far as the stomach of bronze, now I know some of you guys were wondering if Nebuchadnezzar might have been dreaming of your six-pack, but that's not actually what was going on. It's a reference to Greece under Alexander the Great. And then we have the kingdom of Rome. Legs of iron, feet of iron, and clay. It's natural to want to explore what these components of the dream, what these kingdoms were that the components of the dream represented. But, friends, let's not miss this. This prophecy hasn't been given to us to satisfy our curiosity. Prophecy in scripture is always given to point us to a person. Don't miss the point. In the midst of cultural decay, in the midst of kingdom building and kingdom falling, God is removing authority and God is establishing authority. God is changing times and seasons. And he's doing all of this according to his wisdom and power. And he will continue to do so up to a certain point. Now remember, what did this dream in its totality represent? The last days. So God is going to continue to do all of this 
up to a certain point, the last days, and those last days are marked by the arrival in the nightmare of a single solitary stone. Listen to how it's described in verse 44. This is Daniel speaking. In the days of those kings, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And this kingdom will, be, will not be left to another people. Remember before it was, you're the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, and after you. And there will be a kingdom of silver, and after that, this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all other kingdoms. It will bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. Nebuchadnezzar, you saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it. It crushed the iron, the bronze, the fired clay, the silver, the gold. The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. So what is the stone a metaphor for? It's a metaphor for an eternal kingdom. So let me ask a question and answer it out loud if you know it. During the fourth kingdom, the Roman kingdom, what king with an eternal kingdom appeared? Jesus Christ. 600 years after Daniel spoke these words. This fact is abundantly clear in scripture. I'm not making this up. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. Friends, if you are skeptical about the reliability of the Bible, see in this prophecy, 600 years before Jesus, a miraculous demonstration of God's wisdom and reliability. Through Jesus, God's wisdom and power on, are on display as God's kingdom undermines and outlasts all earthly kingdoms and grows into a mountain, a mountain of hope. The king of that mountain of hope has a name. His name is Jesus. He is our mountain of hope. This passage is not only highly theological and unarguably political, it is quintessentially Christological. But there's another pointer in this passage to Jesus. And this is where it, it just starts to get crazy. Okay, like the unity of scripture is insane. Colossians chapter 2 verse 3. Paul is writing to the Colossians. And he describes Jesus Christ in, these, in this term. In him are hid all of the treasures of what? Wisdom and knowledge. Romans 1.6. What is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ? It is the power of God 
unto salvation. 1 Corinthians 1.24, Jesus Christ is described as the power of God and the wisdom of God. Further, when we submit to him in repentant faith, verse 30, we are told that Jesus becomes for us what? Wisdom from God. Wisdom, power. Wisdom, power. Wisdom, power. The wisdom and power of God are seen ultimately and supremely in the person of Jesus Christ. Not in a nightmare of a freaky statue. This is the essence of this passage. Jesus' kingdom is a mountain of hope. His kingdom undermines and outlasts all other kingdoms. And guess what? God preserves his people through the rise and the fall of every other kingdom. Daniel remains in the court of that king and in the court of the next king. Kingdoms come and go. God preserves his people. And he gives them exactly what they need the moment they need it as those kingdoms rise and fall. Daniel needed wisdom. God provided it exactly when he needed it. So as we move into application, we cannot miss the fact that this passage at its core is both political and theological. It's a union of theology and political science. It demonstrates the person at work behind geopolitics, presidential elections, and the rise and fall of nations. I think this might be important for us to grab onto entering yet another political season. So three simple points of application. If Jesus is our mountain of hope, then first, praise God. Praise God no matter who is in power because wisdom and power belong to God. Period. Second, trust God. Trust God no matter the mysteries of life the mysteries in life that you are facing because God alone reveals truth. So let me ask you, what are the mysteries that are crowding your soul right now? What are the question marks blocking your path? What are the questions buffeting your mind? What keeps you up at night? Maybe they're questions about suffering and trauma. Or theological questions about some aspect of the Bible or God's nature. Or maybe they're questions about your own story. God, why would you allow that to happen? Friends, even kings have questions that they don't have answers to. Nebuchadnezzar found what each of us must experience personally. There are some mysteries in life that takes nothing short of the wisdom of God to navigate. And my intention here is not to be simplistic or to minimize the pain of your story, but in a very real sense, 
the answer to your questions are found in the person who is himself the wisdom and the power of God. We think we'll be able to trust God when all our questions are answered. But that's not faith. The invitation from the king, our mountain of hope, is to trust him with our questions. To run to him in our questioning. To run to him, not away from him. You see, we hold mysteries. That's part of what it is to be human. We have all these mysteries in our hands and we're trying to figure it out. We hold mysteries, but God holds no mysteries. He holds wisdom. There are no mysteries with God. He may not answer your questions in your short span of earthly life. But maybe the questions we think we need right now, the, the questions we think we need answers to, maybe, just maybe, through discipleship, through living in community with others, through the ongoing work of God as we walk with Jesus, maybe we'll come to see that we really don't need those answers because we have the mountain of hope. Jesus because trusting God's character is more than enough friend you need the wisdom of God in the person of Jesus to successfully navigate the mysteries of life so number one praise God no matter who's in power number two trust God no matter the mysteries of life number three hope in God no matter the circumstance because King Jesus has come once, and he's coming again. In some corners of Christianity, and maybe in your own heart, there are lots of questions like, are we in the last days? And friends, the answer is yes. Yes, we are. And it has nothing to do with what you read in the newspaper or on Twitter. It has everything to do with the fact that Jesus has already come once, Therefore, we are in the last days. The last days began when Christ raised from the dead. So yes, we are in the last days. So what do we do? We look to the mountain of hope. I love how Daniel 2 ends. Again, Verse 49, verse 48. The king promoted Daniel and gave him many generous gifts. He made him ruler of the entire province of Babylon and chief governor over all the wise men of Babylon. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to manage the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. He's doing his job. He's blessing Babylon. He's waiting for the mountain of hope. And friends, so may we as a church, may we bless Hill City and Chattanooga. We hold a block party for our neighbors here in a few weeks. We engage with the world around us, not in fear of who's going to become the next president, because guess what? God raises kings and puts down kings. You don't have to fear anything. 
We engage with the world around us, not in fear, but in hope, because we have a mountain of hope. And his name is King Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for its clarity, its beauty. Father, thank you for the stories you have recorded for us, true stories that strengthen our faith, that remind us we are not the first sojourners, exiles, that give us examples of faithfulness and courage, and that ultimately point beyond themselves to Jesus Christ. So Father, as we wait for the coming of King Jesus, as we participate in this kingdom that is even now growing and one day will fill the whole earth, help us to be faithful. Help us to trust you. Help us to praise you. Help us to hope in you. And we pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.